Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International Podcast. I'm your host, George Santrizos, and if you haven't done so already, you can check out other episodes on any other uh, audio platform that you get your podcast from, or you can uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel and uh, take a look at all those other episodes. We do appreciate it. Um, We have another interesting guest today. Uh, with us as well, uh, Dr. Costas Lavdas, Director of the Graduate Program uh, in International Relations and Strategic Studies at the Pantheon University in Athens. Uh, hello, Costas. How are you? Hey, George. Hello from Athens. I'm fine. Very nice to have you on. I appreciate the time that you're taking. Obviously, I know that you're a very busy man. Um, so the fact that you've taken this time to share your knowledge with us, especially at a time where there's a lot of things happening uh, in Europe, um, is much uh, appreciated. Um, I it's, want it's it's my it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I, I I'd like to pick your brain because of the 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 expertise that you have uh, on issues related to European politics, uh, of course, and especially strategic studies. Um, obviously, people have been stuck to their TV screens all over the world following the conflict in 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 Ukraine and Russia. At the time that we're recording this episode. It seems as though this conflict has taken uh, another dimension. It seems as though we've turned into a new phase. Um, Depending on when people are listening to this episode, uh, there was uh, a couple of days ago um, a demolition of the bridge linking Russia to Crimea. And ever since that happened, uh, Russia has began a a shelling campaign into uh, Ukraine, many cities, especially uh, Kiev. how do you see this? Is this? Uh, do you believe this is a new phase in this conflict? Um, give me your thoughts on that. Well, it's probably safe to say that uh, Russia is responding, uh, committing another error, uh, responding to this demolition of the bridge. But they're responding in a way that is apparently uh, aimed at infrastructure as well as the population. So they are committing another error because, of course, it's obvious that uh, they cannot win the war by terrorizing Ukraine, um, that should have been clear by now. And probably what they are doing is more of the same. Um, it's, it's a puzzle, it's a, puzzle it's, it's a paradox how Russia really designed this, this whole mess. Um, and I think that uh, unfortunately we have reached a position which both parties have no immediate need for uh, stopping the, the, the exchange on the military field and moving towards a more directly uh, political or, or more positively, let's say, um, um, diplomatic um, phase. Uh, unfortunately, both, both parties now feel that they have more to, to, to win uh, while fighting rather than on the diplomatic field. And that is a problem, of course, because it means that uh, clearly uh, for for the next few weeks, maybe months, who knows, even more, uh, we will still have, unfortunately, this this war on, which creates problems at several levels. First of all, it's a tragedy, obviously, for people in Ukraine, uh, but also it creates huge problems uh, around the globe, as you know. 
So therefore, unfortunately, one cannot be optimistic. It seems that um, military conflict rather than diplomatic negotiation will be um, continuing for the next few weeks, unfortunately. Unfortunately that you're saying this will uh, ultimately um, uh, resolve to more lives being lost. But I want to talk a little bit more strategically since it is your expertise. Uh, another thing that we saw recently was uh, Russia forcing a referendum in, uh, in uh, I believe, four eastern uh, regions of the Ukraine, uh, ultimately resulting in a positive result. Um, of course, those... Um, uh, that referendum hasn't been recognized by anyone internationally. However, Russia did seek the opportunity to annex these uh, these regions into Russia um, on a strategic level. Uh, how do you see this? Because from Russia's perspective now, we're talking about a conflict happening in its territory. Do you believe that this is all intentional in the sense that they could now claim that Ukrainians are fighting on their land, on their territory. How do you see this development? Well, again, it's something that can be read in a number of ways. The, the obvious, um, let's say, interpretation of this is that Russians now feel that they can defend in a way that would involve all sorts of different uh, resources. And there was a hint, not recently, but about 10 days ago, that that would potentially include also the uh, remarkable strategic and tactical nuclear resources. But then again, it is highly unlikely that this will actually materialize. And therefore, what we're left with is an act of escalation. It's escalation forming another escalation and so on. And so basically, although it's easy to say that, of course, they now feel that uh, they will be more capable to do whatever they feel they need to do because this will be now Russian soil. In fact, what it really is, is escalation. And the problem there is that even if you had some sort of um, intermediate period of uh, lesser conflict, that would be used even for rearming, for more attacks. And uh, this would apply to both sides. Ukraine would also be able to prepare for more defense and, and Russia would be able to prepare for more, for more attacks. Because the problem now is that we're really uh, stuck with, with the notion that the solution will be found in the fields uh, in the battlefields rather than in diplomatic negotiation. And then, of course, this has to do with both parties. Russia is the, the power that is really the power that attacked. It's the, the power that in, invaded Ukraine. That's obvious. On the other hand, uh, for Ukraine to claim that they now need Crimea also back, it is something that creates uh, a number of problems for an immediate ceasefire. Um, it seems as if both states... Uh, Russia, as well as Ukraine, uh, aim to maximize, constantly maximize their, their potential profits from, from, this, from this battle. Now, Crimea is also within the, the discussion, and this makes it difficult also for others to, to maybe try to, to, to mediate. Um, there has been a number of attempts, there have been a number of attempts at mediation. But all these attempts have been really stillborn because of a number of factors, uh, mainly because these two parties are not, till now, ready to negotiate. Um, so this new move you, you mentioned is, is, is not really going to change dramatically the, the logic of the conflict. Um, and it's, it's, it's possible that we can have more escalation 
it's possible that we, what we saw with what I characterized an error stake, uh, that is Russian um, counteroffensive, if you like, on infrastructure as well as unfortunately civilians. Uh, will be followed by more escalation by both parties this time and so on and so forth. So we, we are not near, um, at least near an obvious um, outcome that would involve negotiations. There is one exception, namely the notion that um, the notion that the Kremlin is now talking about the possibility of um, conference between um, the American president and the Russian president. But that's something that I think it's very difficult to, to, to imagine at this particular point. So I take it very, very cautiously to simply indicate um, the willingness of the Kremlin to send some mixed signals at the same time as they escalate uh, mm-hmm. on, on the battlefield. Um, finally, one also needs to take into account that um, this comparison that many people try to draw between the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis and what's going on today is is difficult. It's difficult to compare 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis and today, uh, partly because you, you at, at the time you had the whole system in place. The, the Cold War was in fact a system, and in, in, in that respect, uh, you had more predictable, uh, if you like, uh, interactions. What we now have is a more complicated world. The globe is in effect although it's not immediately obvious to the eye, but it is in effect already a multipolar world. It's very difficult to predict uh, the way in which different parts of the globe react to escalation. So comparison with the past is always interesting, intriguing, inviting, uh, but it's but it's difficult. And I think we are really in uncharted waters now. I want to ask you a question. Um... From an international perspective, the world was kind of blind when, you know, it turned a blind eye when Russia uh, annexed the uh, Crimea. Why is it different this time around, you think? Why is there so much attention uh, in that part of the world, whereas just, you know, a couple of years ago, no one even knew what was happening on the ground? That's a good question, actually. Um, What happened in Crimea in 2014 was different in the sense that you had different governments all around. You had the Obama government, of course, in Washington, Obama administration. You had different governments in Europe. You had different governments in Germany, um, in France, and so on. But you also had the sense that that was the crucial step that the Kremlin was about to take, and that was it. Because remember, you then had the Minsk agreements that were supposed to, to, to lead to a degree of autonomy for the eastern part or southeastern part of, of Ukraine. And of course, the Minsk agreements um, collapsed. They were not implemented. And then, and then of course, responsibilities to both sides, um, Russia as well as Ukraine. So therefore, number one, um, there was a different international climate. Number two, um, clearly people thought that the Minsk agreements regarding southeastern Ukraine um, should be given a chance, if you like. and and And... Ultimately, also, I think um, in the case of Crimea, Putin did something much more intelligent. It was a, a mixed type of warfare. There was also hybrid warfare. It was something that um, was able to, to work for them effectively in a, in a very quick and, and, um, and limited uh, time periods, unlike 
the attempt now to really uh, hit directly, attack Kiev, and subjugate the whole country, because that's what happened after the 24th of February. So it was a different kind of operation. There were very limited objectives, um, and the world was different as well. Plus, remember, I want to reiterate this, this development, the Crimea annexation, was followed by the uh, Minsk agreements. Therefore, people thought that they should give Minsk a chance. It's different now because you have a full-blown mass war of one country, in this case, a nuclear power, a major nuclear power, Russian Federation, against another. And um, the way in which this was uh, designed and planned is very much like a 19th century uh, case of warfare um, to the extent that people were very difficult to believe that actually take place before the 24th of February. People were, I think, understandably, uh, talking about different types of maybe hybrid um, sort of um, uh, conflicts rather than this um, fully blown mass war that uh, Putin um, appeared to have designed for, for, for Ukraine. Um, finally, there's a question of how people learn from, from possible mistakes. And I think the West was clearly, uh, this time was clearly ready to think that we don't need to give um, Russian Federation, the Kremlin, Putin um, more chance to, 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 to prove that he's a revisionist. He's someone who defies borders. He's someone who wants to change the map in the vicinity of the Russian Federation. So it's, so it's a different period. But then again, you have to understand that um, the fact that actually um, Russia attacked Ukraine means that deterrence failed because, of course, the West, NATO, the Europeans uh, were keen to deter such an attack. So the 24th of February means that deterrence failed. And the question about deterrence now is more complicated. The attempt to deter Russia from attacking Ukraine has failed. That's black and white. There's mm -hmm. nothing more that can be, can be said about it. But the question now is not a question of deterrence, as far as I'm concerned. It's a question of how to interpret different acts and how to achieve de-escalation. Because, of course, as you know, a threat can be deterrent or a threat can be compellent, um, can be designed to compel somebody. Um, what sort of deterrence we want to exercise now? It's unclear. Do we feel that Russia will try next to, to, to attack um, Moldova? Do we feel that Russia will then extend beyond the, um, the, the boundaries of the former Soviet Union? This is entirely, entirely, I think, uh, hypothetical and it's, it's speculation. Therefore, talking about deterrence, as some people do now, is, I think, confusing. Deterrence fails. We now need to make sure that uh, Russia does not actually occupy Ukraine. And it appears that the Russian plan is not going <laughs> according to plan. Um, there have been huge mistakes. But on the other hand, we also need to be focused on de-escalation at some point. Because otherwise, we'll be talking about a deterrence vis-a-vis -vis something we're not sure that we can define. Uh, presumably, Putin is not interested in, in, in occupying the Baltics. Presumably, Putin is not interested in occupying you know, Scandinavia and so on and so forth. So basically, we need to, to try to understand our own in the West lines, how, how, how further we want to go, to what extent we feel that we need to... Uh, to sacrifice um, welfare, 
um, and ultimately also lives uh, for um, escalating further so that we can reach a situation in which the Kremlin believes that our actual goal is regime change. All these need to be defined, at least if not in public, at least in the minds of those who appear to be taking decisions. Because if we seriously think that as a result of this conflict, we need to have regime change in the Kremlin, then this is an entirely different sort of conflict. If, on the other hand, <clears throat> we want to make sure that Ukraine is able to pursue its goals uh, following uh, a free um, political and antagonistic um, way of, of reaching policy decisions, then I think the scope is more limited and it's much more, let's say, possible that in the next few months there will be some sort of de-escalation. Um, I'm, 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 I'm also very keen to, to emphasize the fact that while we talk correctly, rightly, about revisionism, we also need to take into account that um, Putin's attack on Ukraine is definitely not the only manifestation of revisionism in today's world politics. Uh, there has been revisionism in the past. You have cases of revisionism today, unfortunately, and probably you have all sorts of cases of revisionism in the future. And therefore, we need to have a, a sort of perspective so that we don't apply uh, double standards, for example, to Mr. Mr. Putin and Mr. Erdogan, uh, but also take into account the, the historical experience, which is that the usual division of powers between status quo powers, reformist powers, and revisionist powers is, is really an analytical distinction that is valuable. We need a distinction, but we cannot act um, in everyday life based on that distinction. Whereas the distinction between escalation and de-escalation is a very practical distinction, and we need to draw some lines and make sure that um, the Kremlin understands these lives. Because as I, said, as I said five minutes ago, this is a much more complex and also therefore complicated world compared to the world in 1962. Uh, you now have a world with uh, emerging or emergent powers that have all sorts of different handles. This war is viewed differently in Delhi than it is, for example, in Beijing. Uh, is viewed different, differently in, in South Africa, in Brazil, uh, and we need to take this into account because ultimately we are living in uh, an era of energy transition, and this energy transition will need to take into account, among other things, um, exchanges, interactions, but also materials that are around the globe, including Asia, but also, of course, countries beyond Russia, such as India, such as China. Mm -hmm. So this is a world in which we need to take into account not just the distinction between status quo powers, reformist powers, and revisionist powers, and say, hey, we need to punish Mr. Putin because he's a revisionist. Of course he is. He's a criminal, not just a revisionist. He kills his own people, and we have established that for a number of years. But we also take into account that this is a complex world in which, and in the context of which we, we need to cooperate with powers that do not appear to have the same view about the world as we do. So we need to de-escalate uh, and then try to rebuild linkages and understandings uh, around the world. I want to I wanna bounce off what you said about uh, the, the deterring Russia. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year when the conflict started, there were discussions about uh, accelerating uh, Ukraine's 
um, accession to the European Union. Uh, correct. Talks. correct. Obviously, yes. this is a long process for any country to enter the European Union. Um, how would that impact uh, the dynamics of this conflict? Assuming that uh, Ukraine's uh, accession into the European Union w- were to happen, you know, before the end of the year, if that if that's possible, which I doubt it. I mean, there's only a couple months left uh, to, 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 to the it's, end of the year. It's, it's entirely impossible for that to happen. I mean, what, what can happen is uh, one of two things. Uh, one possibility is for the European Union to, to publicly state that this expedited process will lead to a fast-track examination application. But even this fast-track will last uh, years, not just months. So we're talking about a fast track that may may last two or three years rather than six, seven, or eight. That's what we're talking about. And that's one possibility. The other possibility is for um, Ukraine to um, be admitted to what is already since the 6th of, um, of, of October uh, in existence, which is the so-called European political community um, that had its uh, first meeting in, in Prague on the 6th of October, which is a new framework, but it is a very loose framework. Um, I'm not saying it is a substitute for the European Union, of course it is not, but um, one can can explain to policymakers and politicians in Ukraine that you are now within a European framework. This framework is called European political community. It is less strict, less governed, by particular rules and regulations in comparison with the European Union. Uh, it provides a policy coordination platform for different European countries across the continent to exchange views and foster some common uh, um, ideas about their common interest, including security, stability, and of course, prosperity, as well as something that is very, very uh, urgent for Europe today, uh, the way to tackle the European energy crisis. So basically, The second option is to say, okay, Ukraine is now a member of the European political community. As I said, this was created (laughs) after strong French initiatives uh, and it had already its first meeting in Prague. There will be uh, another two meetings, maybe one meeting later this year and another meeting next year. Then it will kick off from 2023 even more vigorously. It now consists of 44 states. that's a possibility because it will mean that Ukraine will have somehow uh, been able to, uh, to, to, to confront successfully the, the identity problem. And this is a problem that has nothing to do with being a Ukrainian. Of course, Ukrainians know very well uh, that they want to have an independent state. Uh, and they're, f- they're proving this every day in a way that is remarkable and admirable. But, but, but it's, it's something much more complicated to say, I'm an independent state, I need the support of NATO and the European Union, and of course other free countries and, and free political systems uh, to, to stand on my feet. And it's a different thing to say, I'm a member of Europe. European political community gives this opportunity to Ukraine to be a member of a framework um, rather than wait, because they will have to wait for years, not months, mm-hmm. become a full member of the European uh, Union. But I suspect also that this is more acceptable to uh, the Russian invaders, because, of course, uh, full membership in the European Union, when it's actually achieved, which will take years, as I said, 
will also imply uh, membership in a number of structures that have to do with security and defense. And this is, of course, something that um, the Kremlin will, will object to, not that we are interested in the Kremlin's objections, but it is something that we need to take into account. The real um, sort of um, task now, I think, for Ukraine is to reach a position in which they will try to start rebuilding the country and then working with the European Union and, of course, the United States and Canada and the other uh, NATO allies as they rebuild the country to try um, gradually to become a full member of the European Union. NATO is a different story, as you know. So an ideal scenario, um, as I see it for Ukraine for the next three, four years, maybe five years, would be to um, try to rebuild the country, become, whenever possible, in a number of years, a member of the European Union, being already a member of the European political community, which, as I said, is a, is a platform, uh, and, and then remaining neutral as regards NATO. Uh, you, you know, I, I just want to stay on the European political community. Obviously, this is something new that we're all getting um, familiar with uh, That's right. now. Yes. Tangibly, however, I mean, it doesn't mean anything for Ukraine with respect to the conflict with Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the purpose of, I mean, aside from uh, exchanging policy views and establishing certain positions so that you know, uh, they could be examined for implementation. Um, What is the long-term goal? I mean, is this necessary, this European political community, when you have a European Union? Does it mean that the European Union isn't effective or is it not uh, meeting certain standards that were once uh, uh, believed? Uh, What is the purpose of it? Like, why do we need uh, an additional uh, European institution? Well, it's clear that unlike the European Union, which is something like a loose confederation in the making, the European political community is a, is a strictly intergovernmental framework for members beyond the European Union uh, to, to make sure that they have a forum in which to exchange views and coordinate action. If you think about some of these um, um, states, uh, such as Turkey, for example, Turkey is obviously not a member of the European Union, but it has accepted a role in this framework of policy exchange and coordination that is now in the making. Uh, think about the United Kingdom, of course. After Brexit, as you know, the United Kingdom is no longer a member of the European Union, but it is one of the two main European powers, France and, and UK. And it is vital to have some sort of framework of multilateral, as well as, of course, bilateral um, consultation. Or think about countries like Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, you know, they're countries that are obviously enemies, and they find a framework in which to talk to each other and also accept mediation, not just formally, but also informally. So, yes, there is a need for something that encompasses much more than the core of the European Union. On the other hand, of course, as uh, I think you hinted, um, there are questions that are obviously open. How many members will remain after a few years? Uh, the initial meeting in the Prague was a meeting of 44 members. That's very ambitious. And as I said, you can, you can um, think about all sorts of different countries. Practically, almost every European country, apart from Russia and, 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 and of course, uh, its um, strong ally, uh, Belarus. So basically, the idea was to include everybody, to talk about energy, talk about security, 
but also talk about the immediate challenge, which was, of course, what the Ukraine war, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But like I said, there are questions. Uh, we don't know what sort of form this framework will take in a year or two, what sort of institutionalization we go through. And also, we don't know, as I said, to what extent all these 44 members will be able to follow this pace of gradual institutionalization. For some states, such as Turkey, uh, this could be seen as a substitute for European Union membership, although officially Ankara denies this. Ankara says that this is a useful framework, but it's not a substitute for EU membership. But the truth of the matter is that there are states, such as Turkey, for which the EU full membership scenario is in fact dead. Uh, so therefore, we need to have a framework within which to talk to Turkey, even if we know that Turkey, in fact, um, never is going to be um, for the foreseeable future uh, of many, many years to come, a full member of the Union. So yes, it does play a role, but there are many open questions about the future of this, of this framework. And in the meantime, of course, we also need to remember that it is obvious that um, great European powers such as France and Germany within the European Union, such as Britain outside the European Union, uh, uh, keep jockeying for power. There's no question about it. Uh, European integration was not able in some magical way to you know, eradicate the past and somehow magically turn proud ancient European states to uh, simply good fellows that work closely with one another. There are still national interests, there are still national strategies, but there is something else. Uh, some of us talk about it for many years, but it's self-restraint. What I think is, is, is amazing about the European project, apart from its positive achievements, is the fact that it has been able to provide incentives for self-restraint. There are different ways um, with which Paris approaches crisis compared to those approaches taken by Berlin or by Rome or by London outside the EU. And yet this common project has at least socialized people and policymakers and everybody in a culture of self-restraint. So the idea would be that ideally this culture of self-restraint and negotiation and coordination could spill over beyond the borders of the US such to this much broader framework, which we now call the European political community. It's, it's, it's a difficult uh, thing to achieve, of course, but I think it's worth trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, in addition to the countries that are not yet part of the European Union, we can also uh, project countries around the Mediterranean, North Africa, the Middle East as well, everyone that has um, a common benefit with uh, the European Union. Uh, speaking of which, I want to bounce off to a, a challenge uh, within the framework of the European Union, and that's the, the reality in the East. Mediterranean uh, between Greece and Turkey. So there's a paradox there. One, because they are both NATO member countries. There have been continuous provocations and this has this is not new. This has been ongoing for years. Uh, but something specifically uh, and more recent is um, the agreement or the, the, the upcoming agreement between Greece and Egypt with their um, uh, the EEZ uh, zones, which of course poses a problem for Turkey that have created this obviously not recognized corridor between uh, Turkey and Libya uh, that falls, you know, 
magically within that realm of uh, the maritime zones that uh, Greece is trying to protect and uh, that is establishing based on international law. Um, but it has taken um, uh, uh, another step, the, the provocations in the East Mediterranean, the challenges over there. Uh, Turkey, of course, is lined up for an election early next year. Uh, many analysts are uh, presuming that this is just a tactic uh, used by uh, Erdogan to uh, boost his popularity for the upcoming elections, but it does affect the dynamics in the region. It does affect the dynamics in the region, and I think it's more to it than uh, the attempt by Mr. Erdogan to win the 2023 election in, in Turkey. There is, there is a longer-term strategy at work here, I think, which is clearly... Um, clearly defined through this so-called Blue Homeland Doctrine, which is new. I mean, if, if you go back, let's say, not just to the 80s, but even to the 90s, um, you find it hard to understand how Turkey uh, will become a, a maritime power as well. But that's exactly what they're trying to do now. So they're, they're shifting from a reformist to being a revisionist power. Turkey had almost never been seriously a status quo power, but the, the, the road from reformist to, to revisionist is clearly um, something that is taking place for years now. It has nothing to do with uh, the 2023 election in Turkey. Obviously, the 2023 election makes things worse because there is, as you said, an incentive for Mr. Erdogan to, to play the nationalist card. But the problems are, are deeper. And you can see this by, for example, this agreement you referred to between Turkey and uh, a number of different warring factions in, in, in Libya. Um, that created uh, a monstrosity that has nothing to do with international law of the sea, of course. Um, by contrast, the maritime agreement between Greece and Egypt, uh, the maritime agreement of August 2020, is an agreement that defines exclusive economic zones in the Eastern Mediterranean between the two countries in accordance with international law of the sea. And therefore you have a clash between a definition of economic zones, exclusive economic zones in the Mediterranean, in accordance with the rules, regulations, and the norms of the international law of the sea, and some sort of voluntary slash volitional and voluntarist and ultimately revisionist and aggressive attempt by Turkey, for example, to claim that islands, including very uh, substantial uh, islands uh, like Crete possess no exclusive economic zone, which is bizarre. Of course, it's not something the international law of the sea uh, will, will accept. Um, so therefore, there's a clash between two different views about how to proceed with your international business. And this is a clash that goes beyond, um, started way before the electoral uh, problems and considerations of Mr. Erdogan. And I fear that will be with us well after the end of the elections in 2023 Turkey, irrespective of what these elections will, will, will bring um, to power in, uh, in Ankara. Um, so it's something that I think is now linked increasingly with Russian Ukraine conflict. Because in this context of the war in Ukraine, <clears throat> Turkey believes that its own geopolitical role has been um, strengthened. Mm -hmm. uh, to some extent, that's true. There's no question about it. But the West now needs more Turkey than less Turkey. I mean, they, they, they need it more than they used 
made um, Turkey's contribution to, um, to the alliance. And the way in which Mr. Erdogan tries to, to benefit from this particular window of opportunity, as he sees it, is uh, a bit, a bit uh, undiplomatic. And I think everybody knows this, but the real dilemma is what to do with it. The West needs Turkey to stay, to stay close to the West, but also avoid creating problems within NATO. For example, by leading um, Greece to administration in which they will have to, to, to pose some red lines and defend them. On the other hand, this attempt to keep Turkey close and at the same time make sure that NATO integrity is not in any way jeopardized is a very difficult. But that's very, an, very yeah, that's an, that's an interesting point. I mean, we're seeing the tensions mounting in that part of the world. What does that mean for for NATO specifically? Because we're looking at two allies over here. Uh, Absolutely, NATO members. Absolutely. Yes. Um, what does this mean for NATO? The fact that you have two NATO members that just can't seem to find a common ground uh, and and cooperate. In fact, Turkey has taken a complete opposite path. Uh, with the purchase of S-400 missiles. So they seem to be, uh, you know, brokering deals um, with countries that have forever been the quote-unquote enemy of NATO, right? I mean, the reason why NATO has existed uh, is to... Uh, that's, that's right. That's correct. Well, you have to remember that um, both Greece and Turkey were the first, very first NATO love back in the early 1950s. Um, what happens today is, I think, uh, a very interesting development. Turkey tries to simultaneously uh, explore new possibilities in the East uh, and around the globe, in fact, within BRICS, for example, within the Shanghai framework and so on, and remain a NATO member at the same time as they try to benefit from this conflict in order to gain points vis-a-vis Greece. Um, and, and this is something that NATO and the West general should take very seriously in consideration because obviously it is still possible, unfortunately, that as NATO becomes stronger and more robust in the north, it will disintegrate in the south if a real military conflict between Greece and Turkey uh, erupts in, in the Aegean or other parts uh, of the Mediterranean south of Crete. So therefore, there is, there is a danger for stability and peace in the region. There is also a danger for NATO. Uh, it makes no sense for NATO to celebrate its strong presence in the north and let its south disintegrate because the south, southeastern uh, flank of NATO would, of course, be destroyed if Greece and Turkey were to, to take up arms against each other. So that's something that I think Mr. Stoltenberg and, and the rest of the people in, in Brussels should take more seriously than, than they do. And this leads us back to the dilemma, how to, to deal with Turkey. And I think time and again, um, people in the West have viewed Turkey as a more or less, more or less committed NATO, NATO ally. But in fact, um, for the past 10 years plus, one could even say for, for all the years following the end of the Cold War, Turkey has been on a road of trying to increase its strategic autonomy. Ultimately, if you look at Turkey after 1990, it is a Turkey that, in a number of ways, more discreetly sometimes, extremely uh, brutally right now, aims to, to increase its strategic autonomy and explore options around the globe. And this is something we need to take into account because, of course, if you look at the Greek side with all its problems, the truth of the matter is that the agreements 
uh, Greece is dying to Red Sea, for example, with Egypt, and before that, um, with Italy. The agreement through which Greece and Italy designated the exclusive economic zone between the two countries and resolved longstanding issues um, over rights in the Ionian Sea are agreements in accordance with international law. So we have a revisionist power now, Turkey, trying to, to, to have gains vis a vis a power that is within NATO. And it is in no open way, in no visible way, revisionist. This is something that will, will, will of course, uh, be a problem for NATO, even after the Turkish election of 2023, irrespective of what happens in, in Ukraine. I think. Do you believe there is a real threat for um, uh, an armed conflict, uh, a war in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean? Do you think uh, Greece and Turkey will result to that? Well, one, one hopes that that's, that's uh, very difficult to take place, especially when NATO is mobilizing in order to um, achieve a new stability in the states of the former Soviet Union uh, and, and put an end to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Having said that, um, we, we still need to make sure that we don't let Turkey provoke a new conflict. As I said, it makes little sense for NATO to become stronger in the North and disintegrate in the South. And yet this is not an impossible scenario. It yeah. is not a very well, problem. Uh, yeah, the reason I'm asking is because Turkey made it very clear that if Greece were to uh, invoke the 12 nautical mile, which is fully in Greece's right, it, for Turkey, it would represent uh, an act of war. Um, so I mean, the Casus Belli decision. Yes, exactly. Turkish, so the, the tensions are really high, uh, and you, we can you know we can feel it in the air. So I'm wondering. You know, is is all this amounting to a conflict? One wouldn't hope so, or one wouldn't want to. But given the the, the, the current context and the, the situation happening in the region, would it be really it impossible? Is it, it, it is not impossible. It is improbable. It yeah. is definitely impossible. I think it's it's not uh, very probable that two NATO members in this particular juncture, when we're faced with the problem in, in Ukraine, will uh, take up arms against each other. But then again, Turkey's president has been very belligerent. And if you follow the statements, these are clearly statements that aim systematically, consciously aim to provoke Greece mm. into, into losing its temper, so to speak. And that's something that Athens has avoided so far. But as you said, um, the number of options for Greece, um, option you mentioned is, of course, within the, the, the possibilities that Greece can uh, fully legally, within the national law, uh, confines, exercise. And that, again, would be a reason for war for Turkey. So one can never be sure, uh, because, of course, uh, there can be an incident that could, lead, that could lead and then be seen as having led to, to a war through an accident or something like that. Mm -hmm. But we need to remember that uh, we, we, we need to make sure that the way in which we approach Greek-Turkish uh, latent conflict in the Eastern Mediterranean is a way that simultaneously tries to constantly make reference to the norms and rules of the national law and keep in mind the fact that a balance of power between these two um, um, states is necessary. Because unfortunately, although they are both NATO members, every time Turkey feels to be more powerful, uh, every time Turkey feels that they are able to increase their strategic autonomy, uh, the question of the Aegean, 
comes up, the question of history of Iran comes up. <clears throat> and, and, and therefore, I think we need to also keep in mind that when Greece tries to increase its defenses, to increase its military capabilities, as, as they've been doing with uh, bilateral agreements with France, bilateral agreements with the United States, uh, every time this happens, it potentially leads to more stability and peace because from, from, from a Turkish perspective, an imbalance of power uh, will lead to temptations, I think. And, and therefore, we need not just constantly invoking international norms and rules, but also make sure that the balance of power in the region is, is more, or less, more or less kept all the time so that Turkey doesn't feel that they have the ability to, to, to gain some points uh, with, a, with an incident or an accident or whatever you want to call it. Very interesting. We can we can continue this conversation for for a very long time. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, I want to thank you uh, sincerely for taking this time to uh, to share your knowledge uh, with our listeners and our viewers. Uh, I want to remind everyone that uh, again, you can uh, check out more episodes on YouTube or any other audio platform that you get your podcast from. Uh, Cosas, thank you once again uh, for for doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, George. Thanks for the questions and, and, and the lovely discussion. Thank you. Take care. Have a good night over there. Bye bye. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast, produced by Pod MTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found.